Welcome to Invoking Witchcraft, the podcast where the sacred and profane come out to play. So call the quarters and set the round. It's time for another episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Invoking Witchcraft Podcast. My name is Jay Allen Cross, as you know, and I'm just popping in here to give you guys a little bit of a heads up about today's episode. Today we get a little spicy. Today we might ruffle a few feathers, and that is okay. We are about to air the second half of our interview with Peter Michael Bauer, and in this interview, we talk quite a bit about cultural appropriation, or more precisely, cultural misappropriation. And we want to say at the very beginning of this that this is not the first, last, or only conversation we're going to have about this. We're going to be talking about this in an ongoing fashion throughout the podcast. And I'd also like to say up front that we are very much against cultural misappropriation, ableism, racism, sexism, queerphobia, all of these things. We are very firmly against them. At the same time, we are also seeing some things in the community right now where uh, people's attempts to combat these issues are actually coming full circle and becoming oppressive and harmful all over again. And these are things that also need to be talked about as well. So if at this time you are not feeling like you are ready or in a place to hear uh, criticism of the woke movement, today's episode may not be for you at this time, and we welcome you to come back to it at a later date. However, for those of you that are ready to hear, buckle up and follow me. From your point of view, what does cultural appropriation look like in folk magic and how can people avoid appropriating? Because I know there's a lot of folks out there who are afraid to even do anything with the land um, because they're wary of accidentally appropriating from indigenous culture. You know, like Peter, you and I have had this conversation before where, you know, one of the ways that I connect with the land is like learning about and understanding the uh, native edible plants of the area and like supporting their life and reseeding them and like tending to them in the ways that I've learned how to do that. Um, but there are people who would look at me and they'd be like, well, that you're appropriating. Like you shouldn't touch that because you're white. And like, it's a, it's a very tricky area to navigate. So what are your thoughts there? <laughs> yeah. The internet has changed a lot of our contexts so that people think that there is a singular context that is happening in every single place around the world and oftentimes it's argued by, you know, um, identitarian Americans <laughs> yes. who, don't, who, who don't see beyond this Internet culture that they've created. Yes. So it becomes a sort of a policing of actions without understanding the actual, literal, real world context that a person is living in. Because they are, everything on the internet is out of real world context. And so it just creates conflict because not everybody shares the same context. So, you know, um, uh, just a basic example uh, in real life, you would have, you know, uh, the peace symbol in the United States, you know, peace, go switch your hand away around the other way. That means fuck you in the UK. Yep. And those are two very different (laughs) messages, right? Um, what happens when you have everyone on the internet and they're all smashed together in this one context. Now you could have people essentially arguing over, you know, well, that means fuck you. You should never do that. You know, are other people going, no, it means peace. You need to just calm down or whatever. Right. Um, chill out. (laughs) But the reality is we live in different fucking places in the world and they mean different fucking things in the different places where they existed. And now we're ha- we have this global context where everything is supposed to be monoculture. Like that's mm. the, the most fucked up thing about the internet is that it's moving in, in velocity toward like a monoculture of a singular idea where different ideas are no longer accepted and everybody has to follow some sort of, you know, 
singular idea. And if you don't, if you deviate from that, you're going to get canceled or harassed or whatever. Right. And so that that's a thing that's happening. Right. Like um, example in, in regard to appropriation, uh, you know, I post a picture uh, this is years, years ago. This is maybe like 15 years ago now. I post a picture on my blog, uh, me and my friends shooting bows and arrows at the archery range in Portland. And a commenter writes, mm-hmm. oh, great. And we're just wearing normal clothes. We have like synthetic bows. They weren't like, you know, like, I don't know what I was wearing. I was probably wearing like American apparel short shorts or something. It was like 15 years ago. Ray-Ban right. sunglasses. <laughs> and a, I don't know. Um, you know, you know. Um, and, and we're shooting with fiberglass recurve bows at an archery range in a colonized city or whatever, you know, we're just shooting and somebody writes, Oh great. A bunch of white people playing Indian. Oh, and I'm like, I'm like, how fucking ignorant is this person that like, do they, do they think that archery is specific to native American society? Like, you know, um, and and so I went down this whole. That's like that. That that's like that. That comment is what started me on this whole journey of like trying to understand what appropriation is and what it means and how it plays out. And there's a conflation. So you know, to so then before I get into that, I want to say there's another context. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that context is we're in the fucking Anthropocene extinction. Yeah. Um. We need to harmonize with our environments fucking ASAP, yes. which means people need to be on the land doing the thing ASAP. Mm-hmm. Um, this sort of quabbling over certain issues is, I understand where it's all coming from. And we got, we got to do what we got to do, right? Like there's, um, <laughs> we don't have a lot of time, right? Like somebody recently, um, somebody was really upset with me because, um, I didn't talk about whiteness and racism enough. And, um, you know, in, in my rewilding practice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's never enough, right? Like, that's just the thing with this context. It's, it's never enough. There's always going to be somebody who's telling you what you're doing is, is not enough. Uh, I've, made, I've made strides with events and connections and networks and kinship networks and building things. And it just doesn't matter because it's never enough for um, where people want to be. Right. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what you've done if it's never enough. And so there's sort of this unquenchable thirst for, um, you know, racism to be solved. But the thing is, is civilization is going to fucking collapse long before racism gets solved. Yeah. You know, um, civilization is going to collapse long before land back happens on any kind of scale. Right. Mm hmm. So there's a level of like working within the necessary, being aware of those things, conscious of them, working them into your practice, but not letting them become a barrier to actually what needs to fucking happen in the real world, right? Like somebody who's arguing, like, what am I supposed to do? Stop doing archery because some random person on the internet is telling me that I'm playing Indian. No, right. that's fucking absurd, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of what's being asked, right? Like there's there's this whole level of, you know, um, of just trying to make everything accessible for everyone all the time without recognizing that each individual is, is existing in their own context. I see this a lot too with just like whiteness in general now where like, um, you know, there was like a, I, I used to watch College Humor, the YouTube channel. And there was like mm-hmm. a funny sketch they did where like they all of the white people on the cast thought that, um, you know, their black friend on the cast needed money to help pay for things because he was black or whatever. And he was like, just because I'm black doesn't mean I'm poor, you guys. Like, come on, you know, I could pay for my own food or whatever. Um, and it was just like a funny little sketch that they did. But the inverse of that is totally also something that people experience on the Internet that I've seen where it's like just because you're white people assume that you have some sort of wealth privilege to like give money or um, donate time or, or your house or whatever, you know, like, and, and, and so it's just a, um, it's just a really weird thing where everybody thinks there's just one context in which everyone is existing across the board. And that's just not right. true. It's just not true. Mm-hmm. So if that's kind of the case, then we have to realize that we are living in 
complexity and in multiple contexts. And so um, just like, you know, code switching is a thing, right? Mm -hmm. What I don't think people realize is that in order to talk on the internet, you actually have to code switch to internet monocultural speech and yes. internet monocultural norms. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so what happens is, you know, you go on there and, and you say something or you, you post a picture of something and people are not going to understand the context in which it's coming from and they're going to attack you for something, right? Whether it's, you know, racism yeah. or appropriation, classism, any of those things, people are going to come because they don't understand the full context of, of a, anybody's particular situation. And this is all inflated even more because how many fucking strangers are we interacting with on the internet? Like how many, right. like not, not only is it like a monocultural language, it's all just strangers. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's completely non-contextual. People don't know me. I might say one sentence and people are freaking out about it because they don't understand the whole volume of context that exists behind it. Yeah. Right? So in terms of practice, in terms of like appropriation, don't talk about it on the internet. <laughs> don't talk about it out of context. Mm -hmm. and the internet, everything on the internet is out of context. Everything. Mm -hmm. It's the internet's context. So any real world context has been removed. And, you know, people, <laughs> people will ask, I'll post something, you know, and I get annoyed with this too, because I forget, right? I'll post a meme. Like I posted that, um, you know, I've been posting memes about taxation or domestication that people are like, well, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh, right. They don't. And I'll, I'll start to reply and be like, oh, they don't actually understand the context of rewilding. Like they're following yeah. me. And that just makes me assume that they understand what rewilding means, but they don't, mm -hmm. they have no clue. And so they're responding to something that I posted without the whole context of it. And, you know, so how should I even respond to that or do I just ignore it? You know, <laughs> oftentimes I'll just like it to just be like, I acknowledge that you said something and yeah. I'm not going to respond. Right. Because what's the point of wasting time? Unless I want to like be like, actually, you know what, let's step back and have like a long conversation. But then I'm spending all these hours writing to a stranger who may mm -hmm. or may not give a shit at all in the end. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of, that's, that's like to, you know, to preface around a talking about appropriation, you kind of have to recognize the, like all of these contexts that we exist within. Right. Mm -hmm. And then what is actually happening in the real world and, and how, and, and how many different opinions there are about things that exist in the real world that are not perpetuated on social media. Right. Um, and one of those, you know, I see, um, I see a lot of, on social media in particular, a lot of people saying that white people should not be harvesting or using native plants at all. That yeah. to me is completely insane. I mean, that that's just absurd, right? It They're, feels insane because I've, yeah, I've had folks say that to me or or ask me why I'm I'm fucking with bitter root. <laughs> you know what I mean? Totally. Like, I'm just yeah. like, and, yeah. and kind of going back to what you said, you know, uh, I, I've kind of stopped sharing about that. Like, exactly. I, I, I kind of don't really share that, that, that that's what I get up to in the majority of my spare time when I can get out into the woods and to the hills and the stuff. Um, but anyway, as you were saying. Yeah. Um, so in that, you know, the same kind of, um, but I understand the like anger and frustration, right? It's coming from mm -hmm. this, but, but it's coming from an idea that somehow you're taking away um, space or you're diminishing the resource that's out there or not resource, but a relationship or kinship or something, right? Right. Um, what it does is it denies us as non-native people to become naturalized to a place. First of all, it's an ideological uh, essentialized viewpoint that we don't have a place here, that we can't, mm -hmm. that we're not allowed to integrate into the place, that we might not, that, that we're not allowed to have a relationship with their rela relatives, mm -hmm. um, which which is weird in and of itself. And again, I understand the colonial context. The lands were, were, were stolen. Um, we live in a, an occupied state. Those are all fucked up things that have happened. And we're living in the Anthropocene extinction. And civilization, this society is going to collapse. The ecosystems are going to collapse before racism is solved, before things are decolonized, before land back happens, before, 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 right? Like we have to actually be living in accord where we are living. We need to be living in accord with that land 
as fast as possible, as integrated as possible. And, you know, in Robin Wall Kimmerer's book, Braiding Sweetgrass, um, she brought up the metaphor that a lot of us have used for a long time of becoming a naturalized non-invasive, right? So if you think of colonial society as the way we've projected um, it, the, the concept of invasive species, which is totally a, not a real thing. And, and, and a, yep. there's a lot of big conversation about that, but, um, yeah. but the idea of colonialism, right. And that, um, that if we instead look at ourselves, at, look at rewilding to me, rewilding is an attempt at becoming a naturalized non-invasive. It's a rejection of state colonialism. And it's a, all about figuring out how we can fit into this place um, and not be destructive and not be, um, colonial, right? And so, at the same time, though, there's a there's a, a knee jerk reaction to call this practice neo colonialism, and I think the reason for that is because of what you were saying earlier of the sort of capitalist connection to witchcraft and rewilding, where those elements of it are neo colonial because they're not embracing the embodiment, the way of being that represents things like rewilding and witchcraft. They are operating. They're they're taking the 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 capitalistic parts of those, the most sellable parts that hit on our uh, psychological needs and quote unquote pain points is what they say in like the advertising world. Um, mm -hmm. And they're selling products for that. And so that is totally just a form of neocolonialism. But then there's the, the deeper side of that that is not doing that, that is actually authentically working towards becoming people of place again. And there is a uh, it's, it's hard to differentiate between those two things when you see them superficially. And that's the problem with the internet is that everything is superficial. So if I post myself doing a thing, how does somebody know if I'm just a superficial capitalist or if I'm authentically trying to do this thing, right? Especially right. If, it's a, if it's a stranger. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, if you're talking to strangers who are capitalists, who are uh, just going out and collecting sage and, you know, not entering into a regenerative relationship with it, not growing it themselves, not actually embracing and becoming a part of it. They're just extracting it. Of course, you're mm -hmm. going to say, stop doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. Of course. Um, mm -hmm. But when you just say, stop doing that, and you're only acknowledging that frame of it, you're not opening the window for how to become a person of place and how to transition from that. Right. And, so again, there's like this, it's, it's like a, a contradiction, you know, it's a, it's a challenge where we live in a time where in order to, to exist within the state, we have to compete against one another, but the state is going to collapse. And in order to exist outside of the state, we have to stop competing against one another. Mm -hmm. But the state mm -hmm. exists, we're all still captives of it. So we have to live in this sort of world where on the one foot, we're competing with each other for resources through, you know, oppression Olympics and identitarian politics. Uh, you know, uh, identitarian point systems for like all of your different intersectionalities and how much clout that can get you and how much, you know, Venmo money or whatever, right? Or, yeah. or, or grant funding or whatever, right? Like you're competing in this market and it, it encourages people to have ever differentiating identities rather than collaborative identities to work together. And when you're competing in that way, of course, you're going to tell people not to do a thing because you're competing with them for those resources. If we're looking at this from a competitive state mm -hmm. capitalist framework. So it's impossible in a sense to reconcile those two life ways, but we live within that time. And so it's almost like this sort of, you know, worldview of being pulled in and ripped apart in two different ways. On the one hand, we have to become people of place. On the other hand, we're not allowed to because mm -hmm. that means we're competing for that with people who have a more of a right to it based on history and moral, the particular morals of, of contemporary society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it, it just becomes a, a fraught, complex problem, right? But the thing is, is if you don't post about, <laughs> if you... If you don't post about it, the context and you're doing it in this contextless space, you're going to get fried. Um, if you and the solution of to all of this is to be in relation to to be in relation to place, be in relation to people. So, you know, indigenous people in colonized places, they're of that place, you know, and for people to want to have a relationship with the place, but not the people of the place is kind of weird to me, 
right? Like those are Very. those are the people of the place. And, you know, they might be different now than they were 100 years ago, 500 years ago. They might be living differently, but those are still, in essence, people of that place. And I don't want to essentialize them in that way of like that they're somehow better or different on an essential basis. Like we're all the same in terms of human um, but if we're looking at a cultural narrative of reciprocity and rewilding and of being land-based people, then how are you in reciprocity with the land and the people of the land? And that's where it it's amounts to being in relation to. So I've had, yeah. you know, different native elders tell me things like you need to be working with um, native plant species because they need people to be processing and digging them up in order for them mm -hmm. to continue their existence. So again, yes. if we look back at this, you know, um, how is the relationship between disturbance and regeneration? You know, think about the, the breeding like rabbits, right? Like you were talking about bitterroot. Bitterroot loves to be dug because yes. it, it, it grows more vigorously after it's been dug up. Yep. And it, that's because probably in large part, it evolved to adapt to that response of being dug up and being consumed mm -hmm. by the people here, right? So that's co-evolution. And so when people say don't do that, what they're saying is don't be in relation to. Right. It, they're it, they're it, saying like, it's insanity. But what, they, what they think they're saying is don't be an extractive colonizer. Yeah. But what they're saying is don't be in relation to don't be a not don't try to go to be away from and walk away from being an extractive colonizer. Right. And so it just becomes like uh, this. You're stuck between like, you know, decolonize yourself, but also don't culturally appropriate, which ends up the, the only option you're left with is, OK, well, I'll just vanish off the face. Exactly. Of the earth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Or mm -hmm. you move back to Europe, right? And I, I know yeah. I know people who've done that. And that. But that's the thing is, for me, like, I don't, there's no going back anywhere. I was born in Portland, Oregon. Uh, you know, the idea that, yeah. um, the idea that we came from somewhere else, like, that's that's also just part of this. It's, it's a narrative. And it's not one that I subscribe to. I'm from here. I'm not, I'm not yep. from somewhere. I have nowhere to go back to. This is my home. And if I were to go back, where would I pick? There's a million different ancestral lineages to choose from. So where do you decide is your ancestral homeland when you're an orphan or you've been pushed away, um, you know, mm -hmm. in, in that sense? So to me, the, the only option is to become a person of place. And that means to stop moving. That means to like find your heath, right? And own yeah. it and, and don't move away, die there. Choose the place you're going to die in. And then stay there forever, <laughs> yeah. not forever, but travel, right? But I mean, if you if you want to explore, you know, trade and exchange mm -hmm. ideas and things like traveling is still good. But you know, the idea of being a person of place is that you're going to fucking die there, no matter what, right? Like it's it's really hard for people to leave their their home. Their mm -hmm. you know, think about uh, when I think about migrations of people and refugees and things like migrants. Like how fucking hard it must be. I know. Be I know. pushed away through political or environmental catastrophe or whatever. Like to actually have to leave somewhere must be the worst thing ever, especially if your yeah. subsistence and identity and culture are so much tied to those places. It's got to be a pretty horrific thing that would make you leave, you know? Yes. And so it becomes a thing where you, to become a person of place, you really have to find that that place that you're going to subsist off, that you're going to, where you're going to grow your food, you know, where you're going to actually, um, or harvest your food, not necessarily grow, but then how do you live in relation to the things that you're harvesting? How do you make sure that those plants are ritualistically brought back to life? How do you create ritualistic cultural narratives that limit growth, that limit um, consumption? You know, mm -hmm. that to me is sort of the, the apex of, what I would consider witchcraft and, and just any kind of um, any kind of practice around that is this sort of delayed return compensation theory. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, we're we have to create culture to limit our our destruction because mm -hmm. of the Pandora's box that we've opened in our separation between you know quote unquote nature and people or wildness and domestication. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, you know, you don't like there's some obvious appropriative things, right? Like wearing Lakota war bonnets, a Kesha wearing a Lakota war bonnet at a fucking concert, right? Like that yeah. kind of thing is insane and stupid, right? Like <laughs> that's just, that's just absurd. That's like the absurdity. And that, and I think that's the majority of like where the emphasis of cultural appropriation is put, but then it, it trickles into all of these other things where it actually doesn't make any sense anymore. It's the same thing with like ableism, right? Like it makes sense when you are a state and you have to um, have zoning codes to make sure that a new building that's being built is ADA accessible. Yeah, of course, because you're trying to not be discriminatory, right? Against people with disability. But how far do you take that? And, you know, like, is it, um, is it ableism for a painter to paint a portrait that a blind person will never see? Mm. Mm -hmm. Like, where, where is the access point there between, you know, creating access for everybody across the board to a ludicrous extent to recognizing what are we capable of with the energy that we have and, and what we're able to do, right? Like, is it, is, you know, I mean, and, that, and that's just, <laughs> so it's one of those things where, like, you know, somebody was saying, uh, one time I read an article that was like, has cultural appropriation gone too far because a college student that was Japanese was mad that their college campus sushi was really poorly poorly made, and that mm -hmm. their their campus serving poorly made sushi was an example of like misappropriation, and that to me again is like an absurd an absurd thing, right? Like people just make mistakes when they're when they're and and also appropriation is very much specific to um, power dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. And so like the the power dynamic between um, Japanese society and American society is definitely not on equal playing, but it's not anything in comparison to Native American society and American culture, right? Right. And so there's just this, there's a spectrum of like, at what point does this idea no longer make any sense? Mm -hmm. right. and, I think, and I think that's the thing is that when you have a culture that's competing for identity points, it's going to go all the way to the full extreme before people realize how absurd the whole thing is. Yeah, and I think that's something we're seeing right now. And the other day, even I was on TikTok and found a video that apparently nowadays it is considered cultural appropriation for people to braid their hair. And I, I'm not even talking about like cornrows, but to right. simply put your hair into a ponytail right now is considered cultural appropriation. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things like that where I'm like, okay, like, yes, cultural appropriation and misappropriation is something we need to be discussing because there are very big instances of it that are very concerning. But then also, like you're saying, this kind of spectrum, people then run with this, I think, often as a way of kind of displaying their wokeness in public cyberspaces. Okay. And then it goes so much further until it actually goes around the bend and becomes problematic again. As exactly. a person of color who is an author writing about things like Mexican folk magic, I've noticed this too, where people are like, oh, okay, yes, we should support authors of color. But if you do not belong to this very specific culture, then you should not be buying or reading this book. So it goes around the bend of we're supporting them so much that we are no longer supporting totally. them. We can't buy their yeah. book. <laughs> totally. Yeah. No. And I see the same thing too with like, um, you know, Native American art styles, right? Where I've seen people like, you can't wear Native American like artwork or blah, 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 unless you're of that tribe. But you should go to the Native American marketplace and buy a t shirt with that design by a Native designer who's selling it. But then I'm like, but if I buy that t shirt, that's made by a Native American person, and then I wear it. I'm going to get called out for appropriating Native American art, even right. though you know. So I'm actually not going to support them at all because I'm afraid of being. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's the same. Yeah, yeah. It's the same kind of like weird circular logic. And I, and the problem is, if you try to talk about this on social media, the context on social media is that you're not allowed to talk about this. If you do, you're right wing, or you're a, you're a crypto fascist, or crypto racist, or you're just a racist. Um, yeah. Or, 
you know, or a race trader, or I don't know, <laughs> just all the different things. <laughs> what is nuance? Doesn't yeah. exist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, I mean, well, we're, we're recording this in November, and I believe the the Twitter theme this month is no nuance November. So. I heard that. <laughs> That's amazing. I thought it was so funny. Isn't that always the theme on Twitter? <laughs> right, it is. Yeah, I dove into the Twitter hole recently, and it's it's been a lot of fun, but it's also just like, yeah, you say one thing. And it is just wildly taken out of context. It's it's. I refuse to use it. Facebook and Instagram are horrible enough for me. I refuse to use Twitter. Oh, maybe we'll bring you to. We'll convince you to come to the dark side (laughs) (laughs) because I can see you firing some (laughs) hot takes. So I kind of want to loop back to something that you had shared around cultural appropriation and reaching back into, I guess, like, for someone like myself, I'll just use myself as an example, like, air quotes, staying in my lane, and drawing upon, um, so I have Scottish heritage and Scandinavian heritage and connecting with that, and that being maybe the framework with which I practice in. So I draw a lot of my practice from, like, uh, witchcraft trial records of, of from Scotland um, Emma Wilby's book is a uh, really great cunning folk and familiar spirits. So I draw a lot of information from that. But at the same time, I have now seen folks saying, and I've seen this within the social media sphere, of folks appropriating their own cultural heritage and folk practices. And I'm so confused by it. And I, <laughs> I don't really know what to think of it because I'm like, well, then where else do I go? Right. Like, right. Where, where else is there for me to turn? And like Jay said earlier, do I just vanish? Right. Do I just blip out of existence? Yeah. yeah. Because like, you know, I, I have some Sami heritage and I've had folks question me about that. Like I have a, a tattoo from uh, some Sami drum art and... and it's really important to me. Yet somebody would be like that you're appropriating your own culture. How is it possible for us to appropriate from where we are like cultural, like DNA connected to? How is that even possible? Like, is it possible? Yeah. So yeah, I, this is awesome because I, I think it is appropriation, but okay. the, The thing is, is, is appropriation bad? That's the, that's the like core Thing of of part of this conversation as well is is appropriation bad right and right so for me like you know I have so many threads of my ancestry um, I think that the word also the word culture in and of itself is an is a is a cultural construct <laughs> so you know, <laughs> um, you know I think of the contradiction there or the you know absurdity complexity with that but the idea of culture is an invention and so you know when people become or became like Americanized or wherever they are now, um, you know, a lot of people say they gave up their culture and embraced like Americanism or white supremacy or whiteness or these different kinds of frameworks, right? I think that's just, culture is constantly moving, constantly shifting. Everyone's constantly giving up or embracing something else, right? Like there is no one framework of culture. The other thing is it's completely disconnected from DNA. People who think that, I mean, not completely, okay, (laughs) but people who think that culture is specifically related to DNA, I believe, come from hereditary land rights practices, uh, from societies, not necessarily state societies, but societies who have been in a place for a really long time and accrue wealth, they pass their wealth on to the next generation of their families. And so I think that there's this, um, we think of anything that's like hereditary as like we have a right to it because it's part of our heritage, our genetic lineage, right? Whether Mm -hmm. it's land or resources or cultural practices. um, But that's not how culture even works. Like you could be married into somebody else's culture, you know, and become a part of it. Yeah, you could be adopted into a culture and become a part of it. And you're not considered um, a different, a member of a different culture, right? Like, so there's all these different ways of even interpreting culture. 
and then ways of of interpreting appropriation. And we think of appropriation as a negative thing because of the relationship of domination that we often see appropriative things being, you know, the word appropriation just used to mean cultural exchange. And the word that was the negative of that was misappropriation. Because if you take Mm -hmm. something from it and it waters it down, like Kesha wearing a Lakota headdress, that's misappropriation. But the thing is, is that the majority of cultural appropriation was misappropriation. And so it just became shorthand for misappropriation. And then the whole meaning of actual just appropriation in and of itself became lost. Mm -hmm. And then any form of like learning from another culture or adopting from another culture became misappropriation. So cultural exchange is no longer allowed because, you know, uh, (laughs) because it's considered negative. But that like, how did that happen? And when did that happen? And why? And what is actually going on there? So now you have a label that's being projected onto a thing that doesn't actually apply in the same context. So right. for, for me, where, where I have a problem with, the, with it is the identitarianism that comes along with appropriating from my own ancestors. So I'm not Irish. I'm mm-hmm. nothing. Like I said, like when you asked me, how do I identify? I don't identify. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm just a complex organism made up of a thousand different things. I'm part of the place where I live right now. I'm part of my whole, all of my ancestral lineage but I'm not any of those things. And I have a hard, if I, if I put myself in a box, if I say I'm like Irish or I'm American or I'm a man or any of these things, like then, then I lose sense of what I think of as my inner self, my essence, which is just Mm -hmm. a, a spirit inhabiting a body. And the body has a penis and I'm perceived of as male, you know, but like, and I, and I have, you know, ancestral lineage from multiple places, but I, I don't consider myself of those cultures um, in terms of my identity. But I do feel that it is important to understand and embrace where I came from, who I've been, who these different, you know, who my ancestors were and try to follow that thread back as much as possible. So not only is it a complex picture where I'm, uh, I'm, I'm appropriating from my both Iron Age ancestors and if I can go back archaeologically enough, my you know hunter-gatherer ancestors. Mm-hmm. And I'm also appropriating from right here. I learned Chinook Wawa. I speak Chinook Wawa fluently. Um, you know, and and that's so cool. And so when I talk to plants that I'm harvesting, I've been told by the tribal members here that taught me that that's how I, sh- I should address them in that language. And so I do. That's appropriation. But it's appropriation in relation to a place. It's not misappropriation because I'm not taking the language out of context. The context is the tribal usage and that's how I use it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's this this question of permission that people say in regard to appropriation. So if you can ask for permission, but permission is um, not something that you'll ever be granted by everyone within a tribal context. Mm-hmm. So how do you address that? Well, you know, um, you address it by just being in relation to those, to those people, that place, that language, that land, those plants. There are people who dislike me that are members of the Confederate tribes of Grand Ron who probably don't want me around. I don't know why. It could just be that I'm white. It could be that I practice ancestral skills. And when they see that out of context, they don't know me. Um, they judge me before even getting to know me. They think I'm, mm-hmm. um, you know, a white person that's appropriating or whatever. Or, you know, it, it also, an element that we didn't go down the, the explore here is oftentimes people say that you're appropriating, but it's actually um, trauma triggers from white privilege or settler privilege. It's actually not appropriation. Um, It's seeing people doing things that are of their ancestry, but that are not allowed for Native Americans to do. So or weren't allowed to do. So like the bow and arrow, for example, when, you know, that first person being like, oh, a bunch of white people playing Indian, we were just like shooting arrows at an archery range, right? That's Mm -hmm. not appropriation. But I think what that person was feeling was actually that colonial history of Mm -hmm. displacement of the fact that there are now white people shooting bows and arrows, doing a thing that was done here 
by native people that is no longer allowed because it's been displaced, because they their lands were stolen, because these things, right? That's a whole other like thing about this context, right? Is that a lot of the the feelings and anxieties and anger aren't really even about the appropriation. They're about the settler privilege when it comes to enacting these lifeways on lands that native people up until the 1970s weren't even allowed to practice their own beliefs on and spiritual mm-hmm. practices on, right? So there's like a unarticulated pain that is being projected onto people and, and, and we see coming out when they are saying things like white people can't use our, these plants, you know, that is unarticulated pain in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And it's stemming from this, this thing that, uh, and so this is where I think, you know, the combination of practice of being in relation to, of using um, any privilege that you have to leverage that um, to help, rekindle the old ways of indigenous people of a place in partnership with, with them. Right. And so this, but at the same time, if you're going to be in partnership with the community and become a, a member of that community, not, uh, not necessarily, I'm not adopted into the Confederated tribes of Grand Ron, but I'm adjacent. We, our communities overlap, right. I'm a mm-hmm. member of the language community in Portland. Um, what that means is, you know, in a community, there's people who don't like each other. Yep, that's for all, community. for all the reasons, right? That's community. People who don't like each other, <laughs> people who like each other. <laughs> so, but the problem here is that when you moralize not liking somebody based on your own internalized traumas that you're projecting out, and you have a culture on the internet that sees things decon- that decontextualizes everything, that is all about canceling people who disagree with you or who you just don't like, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Then you're rejecting them from. A relationship. It's inherently divisive. So instead of mm-hmm. partnering, it's creating separation. It's furthering the separation mm-hmm. that already exists and preventing yeah. new partnerships from happening. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, I think a lot of people who are afraid to, you know, white people or, or people with um, settler privilege or non-native people uh, who have this fear of, of doing these things, in part, it's because they're afraid of that person that's going to come after them for doing it, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing is, not everybody's going to. And there's ways of navigating this that prevent that from happening. Again, don't do it on the internet. Be, show up in person. Be a real life person, and and you know, in whatever way you can. It's interesting because it's so pernicious this idea of understanding and identifying cultural misappropriation, because that's that's important and that's something that we should be doing. But at the same time, it, recently it's been taken to an extent where it's border lighting on like purity culture or exactly. racial purity. Exactly. Where yeah. It's like yep. everyone has their own lane. Yep. Nobody should diverge from it. Yep cultures should never touch one another or learn from one another or have any sort of exchange. And then we get into that, that goes into things like, you know, eugenics as purity of race. And, and it gets very scary very quickly, even though it started off as something that was so important and so helpful, it goes very dark, very quickly, like anything when it's taken too far. Totally. Yeah. So I think, and that, and that comes back to this other thing of like, you know, when people are often seen or, or perceived of as appropriating and it's, pers- it's projected as a negative thing, they're like, go learn from your own ancestors, you know? Um, and so, but then now there's these people saying, well, you can't appropriate from your own ancestors. Yeah. <laughs> so what the fuck do you do? Right. Um, and that's why I think that there's just a whole conversation around like understanding what appropriation is, if it's negative or not. Um, how we relate to culture, what is the uh, even ideas behind culture and genetics and all this kind of stuff. And being able to realize that at the end of the day, like we're all humans trying to figure out this mess together. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do is find that, that, that point of relative harmony in terms of our disturbance and our regeneration. And the only way that's going to happen is if we actually fucking engage locally in our place. And the only way that's going to happen is if we have the ability and freedom to do that. Mm-hmm. And we do have that if you just don't talk about it on the internet. <laughs> I mean, not really, <laughs> not really. But, you know, I mean, and I, and I do think that the, that it's changing, right? Um, because then the other problem too, is if you start uh, 
If you go really into Iron Age practices, then you're going to be called, again, a white supremacist or a crypto fascist. Like if I started getting, you know, the swastika is an ancient symbol. It's like over a thousand years old on bones in Germany. Um, you know, Germanic people used that symbol. Mm-hmm. I'm never going to have, like, I'm not going to get like a swastika tattoo. I'm never going to do any of that kind of stuff. I'm not going to use that symbol, right? It's been, it's been completely obliterated. Um, from from an ancestral reclamation, but the problem is you had people doing that, you know that like reclaim tradition or whatever, like be a traditionalist. That's like Nazi propaganda, right? Yeah, that's what they yeah. were doing. They created a whole narrative around that already. So then it becomes, you know, I have lots of friends who have like um, runes tattooed on them and things like that, and they're called mm-hmm. out as like fascists or eco fascists or you know yeah. white supremacists or crypto fascists and stuff all the time, and it's like. There's no fucking way out of this. <laughs> there isn't. Um, and and so you know, one time, I, one time on Facebook, I posted like, "How do you um, reclaim Iron Age traditions with, without end up being called a, a fascist?" And somebody was like, "Oh, that's really easy. Every time you see a neo-Nazi, just punch them in the face." <laughs> I was just like, oh, "Okay, that sounds like a." Pretty easy solution. I'm not going to do that, but um, you know, I mean, it was just funny. Like, is that is that really you know, um, that what it's come to? <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, it's really hard, and I I think that there's this other element too that isn't talked about a lot with this concept of crypto fascism, where it's essentially like we already a lot of us in like activist and um, earth activist circles already had to deal with sort of this um, ever present paranoia of like somebody being a fed. You know, yeah. and now and now there's this ever present paranoia of that, and also like crypto fascist. Are they a crypto fascist? Are they a Fed? Are they a snitch? You know, like there's just so many different things now that are just added to the divisiveness of all of it. And it's not to say that those aren't actual threats because they are. Mm-hmm. But how does that impact our ability to connect with um, and em- and embrace ancestral traditions and and embrace the place where we are and embrace the people where we are. And I'll just, it's just, it's just so complicated. And honestly, <laughs> I'm pretty disheartened with it. I feel like I'm a fucking, you know, I, I reread my cultural appropriation essay that I wrote like five or six years ago, seven years ago uh, recently. And I was just like, I read it. And by the end of it, I was just like, wow, I feel like a fucking seasoned cynical, like war veteran at this point. Like this was so like optimistic in terms of its, you know, and, and things I feel like used to be a lot easier in relation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like they've just gotten more and more um, oppositional in the last, you know, two, three years, you know, where land back went from being um, honor the treaties to all white people give up all of your lands and move back to Europe right now. Like there's a spectrum of it where it's like, oh, my God, like one is, you know, uh, a concrete thing that you could do to fight for in state in, within state rights. And the other is just an absurd thing that's never going to happen. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. it's just never going to happen. It's like, why? But it gets loads of social media shares when you post shit like that. Right. Because it's so self-righteous, you know, even yeah. though it's not going to happen. It really does, especially on the platform of TikTok, where there's like a lot of young folks out there who are really susceptible to a lot of this and and they want to do good, you know, and, mm. and then it goes it goes too far. So you may have already answered this question, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway. What is your take on how we can be an accomplice in dismantling civilization through our witchcraft and spiritual practice? Like, how can we... I don't like the word ally. I prefer the word accomplice. Mm -hmm. It feels a little little bit more like... yeah. It's a little more, yeah, it's a little more criminal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, actually, that's, that's actually why I don't, I don't particularly like it so much because it implies criminality, and I think that um, there's a lot that can be done. Well, two things. One, it's sort of like how I don't like divergent because right. um, because it's uh, setting up that the norm is this other thing. That rewilding, while it is a crime to the state, is actually the thing that um, you know we need to do. And it's not really criminal from a rewilding perspective. It's only criminal from the state's perspective. Um, so in that sense, I, I shy away from accomplice. But I do like the fact that it lends itself to a uh, in the muck together kind of mm-hmm. 
kind of framework, you know, not you like being in relationship. Yeah, which together. is what exactly, which to me, the word kinship does in in a really good way. I mean, that's what kinship is, right? And so when mm-hmm. I think about, um, you know, allyship, I think about like, oh, I'm a stranger and I'm donating money to the fund that I see coming across my social media feed. That's like, I'm an ally. I'm an ally. I got some ally points. I donated some money right, right. To, stra- to strangers. Whereas like accomplice is like, I'm showing up to this protest and I'm putting my body on the line, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas kinship is like, I'm fucking married to this person and our children are, you know, part of both of us and we're in this together. Like what happens to them happens to me. That's what kinship mm-hmm. means. And so there's sort of stages or progressions that you could look at, right? Where like, what's the best you can do right now? If you live in a place where it's hard to connect with people of your place, or it's hard to be in anything like a kinship or even an ally, right? Like, what are the ways that you can connect on some level? What are the ways you can give back? Because being in reciprocity with a place means giving back. And if you have something like settler privilege, then you need to give back. And so if you're working with the plants, you're giving back to the plants, but also you want to be working with and giving back to the people. How do you do that? That's going to be a lot more fraught and complex Mm -hmm. than just going out and working with the plants, right? Because people are cultural and um, it's, it's not the same as, the relationship that we have with our plants or with our animals or with our landscapes. Um, they inter they interconnect, but they're going to be a lot different, but still this idea to me is, is um, allyship isn't enough from my perspective. It's fine. It's a great starting point. You know, you got to go to the rally or, or, or go to the thing and show up first. And then you build trust with the goal of being kin. The idea mm-hmm. is kin, kin, relatives, not just countries that are working together to fight a common enemy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I want to feel the pain of my neighbors. I want them to feel my pain. I want to be so intimately connected um, in a mutualistic relationship that it's hard to differentiate myself from others. That to me is is the goal of, of rewilding and quote unquote social justice. Yeah, I love that. Developing those relationships. And that's some a bit of a struggle that I've had where I live um, is it's a really rural community. And I've had a difficult time connecting with folks out here because it's just like everybody lives so far away and whatnot. Um, but finding those ways to connect with them and showing up with my body, you know, like I want to do more than just work with the plants. I want to work with the people and be in relationship to them. And like you said, have them feel my pain and let me be able to feel their pain and share that together. I think that's, yeah, I think that's sort of the the hardest part with the context of the internet is that it's really hard to share pain mutually um, or understand all of it when all the context has been removed and you're talking mm-hmm. to strangers. Mm-hmm. Right. So for our last question, as we wrap up here, You know, I've had a lot of criticisms about how witchcraft has become really self-seeking. We talked about this a little bit earlier and intertwined with capitalism. What's your take on this? And um, I guess, yeah, just to wrap this up, like, how can we orient our practice to be in service of the landed community? We are kind of rehashing this question over and over again. But like for closing thoughts, what do you think there? <laughs> it's just it's just a, a hard contradiction to be living in a capitalist society and at the same time preparing for the end of capitalism or yeah. envisioning envisioning beyond capitalism. So I mean it's one thing to like sell products. It's another thing to um you know every to make to make a living, it's one thing to be to, to be selling products and and producing things. Um, it's another thing to be. I don't know. I, I, there's like a scalable thing, you know, like an extractive thing. Like, how much do you need to actually be extracting in your practice, you know? And when I see like huge companies doing things or or whatever, it it. It makes me wonder like what their level of extraction is versus like a micro community or, or one person who's like, you know, making a living off of, of doing mm-hmm. what they do, um, but not like 
a major, you know, the, the, I guess the concept is like enoughness, you know, <laughs> so I've seen it called right. enoughness, right? What is enoughness and how does that relate back to um, how we live in this capitalist framework in the moment? Like, do we have enough? And what mm-hmm. is enough and what is excess? You know, um, and that's a constant yeah. question that I'm asking myself all of the time. Um, but there's also this sort of watering down of of these practices that we can see when they um, when they get marketed and scaled up. Like oftentimes when things scale up, you get whatever it is, the light version of that, right? Like what's the bite-sized mm-hmm. thing that I can turn this whole thing into and then sell to a mass audience, right? Right. It diminishes. I mean, that's misappropriation, right? It's diminishing mm. the meaning of the thing. And so it can happen on a every scale, right? Like rewilding has been misappropriated. Witchcraft has been misappropriated in order to sell products. So um, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just something to be aware of. At one point I started writing an essay that was like how to spot a fraud. <laughs> um, you know, but but I I gave up in part because I think it plays into sort of the like cancel culture tropes or something. And instead of how to spot a fraud, I think the better thing to do is what is authenticity, right? Not let's reject the thing, but what is the thing we are going for? And if you, mm-hmm. if you really know that thing, then it's obvious what's not authentic, right? Mm-hmm. And so I would just, I mean, I, and I don't have an answer to that other than just everybody out there should be asking that question. What is authenticity with this practice? Right. And I mean, I think we already kind of touched it a little bit yeah. at the very beginning, which was the, your, your question is what, what's my heat? That's mm-hmm. the, that's, that question will lead you to authenticity. Right. Yeah. There are no answers. There's only questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Peter, this has been awesome. And I really appreciate you sharing your time with us and all of your thoughts around this topic. Um, where can we find you? And what are you like? Are you working on something right now? Um, well, I'm in the process of writing a book. We'll see if that ever comes about. Um, but I teach a class called Rewilding 101. I have a, an older book called Rewild or Die. Uh, right now, I'm actually doing an audio version of that. It's 15 years old. So I'm reading through it chapter by chapter and um, posting updates about what I think about the different chapters and what's um, outdated information, what's false, uh, what still holds true. And so that's been a fun kind of process. I have a podcast called The Rewilding Podcast. All that can be found on my website, uh, petermichaelbauer.com, or you can just, you know, patreon.com slash petermichaelbauer is like the the main source of support that I'm doing um, for my online work. But also mm-hmm. anything that I do through Rewild Portland, I also teach um, invasive species basket weaving classes and other sort of interesting random things like that. Um, so yeah, you can follow me on social media too. I'm on um, TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna be exploring TikTok a little bit more in the coming weeks. Um, <laughs> I know my face so, dropped. Y'all couldn't see me, but yeah. <laughs> I was like, "What? Peter's well, on TikTok?" You know, <laughs> you know, so I'm a talker, right? I mean, that's that's my main medium is talking, and so um, TikTok has been frustrating because of the the time limits that they've had on some of their videos, and yeah. they've expanded it in the past couple of months. And I do have a profile on there, and I have made videos, um, but now that they're expanding their time frame, I want to play with it a little bit more. I feel like um, now there's a chance to explain and, and do some talking on some things that um, weren't really available to uh, before. Again, in terms of nuance, right? You have, there's a lot of context mm-hmm. and nuance that needs to be presented in some topics. Um, and so that's why I've kind of avoided TikTok. But now that it's three minutes long, I can, uh, well, maybe that's, that's just the amount of time I need. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Anyway, well, um, yeah, yeah, this has been such a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you all for listening and sure hope you took lots of notes during this episode. And remember, dismantle the establishment and do witchcraft. Do it. Support for this podcast comes from our listeners. If you would like to support Invoking Witchcraft with a one-time donation, please go to invokingwitchcraft.com backslash donate or If you'd like to become a premium listener, join the coven at invokingwitchcraft.com backslash coven.
There you'll get access to our exclusive Facebook group for discussion and connection, as well as access to occasional workshops. We hope to see you there.